Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. We have news for you all. Yeah, we are so excited to share that as so many of you have asked for us to host more than just one week-long immersive experience, we are bringing another retreat into the fold this year. And this time we're headed to Nosara, Costa Rica, June 3rd through 10th. Yeah. We heard you. We heard you. We're doing more. We're trying. <laughs> this time, though, we're actually bringing in two of our dear friends and colleagues to come along with us and join the party. So we're going to have Ashley Torrent and Millie Murillo there. Um, and honestly, the four of us together, I don't know, our powers combined, drawing from our collective work in the healing modalities of psychotherapy, coaching, mediumship, astrology, somatic movement, group processing, all the things. We'll be supporting you all in reclaiming every aspect of the most fulfilling life you can possibly live. It's going to be such a transformational week. I'm so excited already. And if you are interested in learning more, you can go to the link in either of our social bios or head over to Vanessa's website at vanessabennett.com. And we have payment plans available for this one as well. Yeah, definitely hit me up on email if you want to know more about that. We are super excited and we hope to see you all there. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for today's guest. And I would just like to point out that this is an example of how if you put something out into the universe, it comes back to you. I have wanted to sit down with Connor Beaton, as you know, for quite some time. <laughs> and um, he reached out to us a couple months, a couple weeks ago, and um, we had the opportunity to sit down with him. And I'm just... So excited to share his wisdom in this episode. I feel like 
similar to our buddy Jeremiah, he's going to end up potentially, we're going to beg him to become a series regular. <laughs> yeah. Because so there's just so many different avenues that we could go down talking to him. And I felt like the conversation, it was like, it was like pulling teeth to try to condense it into a one hour time frame. So for sure that we're going to do our best to get him back on. I know. One of those were like, we just got started and it's already been an hour. But a little bit about Connor before we get into the episode. Connor Beaton is the founder of Mantox, an international organization dedicated to the personal and professional development of men. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, a keynote speaker, and facilitator dedicated to building better men. Connor has spoken to large corporate brands, nonprofits, schools, and international organizations such as the United Nations, Microsoft, Johnson & Johnson, and TEDx, just to name a few. Um, just such a wealth of knowledge, and he's someone that I, I feel like I can't even name the number of people that I've used him for as a referral for men and um, to support them with the things that they're going through. So just love this conversation. Yeah, I think... I don't know if, if you've listened to a few of the episodes tonight and I have done, especially with our, our brothers in service, you'll probably notice that one of the themes is we're trying to break down this antiquated idea that there's some kind of, uh, like they're wrong. We're right. They need to sit mm -hmm. down and shut up and just listen. And it's our turn. And just this very kind of, um, Again, us versus them feeling that's going on right now between the sexes, right? And I think there's so much that we can learn from each other. There is so much that um, in order for the feminine to be able to rise, it actually has to do so in conjunction with the rise of the healthy masculine. It can't actually do it on its own, right? Like it's got to be in partnership. It's got to be a process of integration. And I feel like Connor is one of the people who kind of unabashedly speaks to that and unapologetically. Mm -hmm. And I, and I like that about him because he's unapologetic, but not in a, I don't know what the word is, like not in a harsh way, but in just like a take it or leave it. This is kind of the reality of what we're going through kind of way. And I think there's something about the way that he speaks to this stuff that really draws me in personally. Yeah. And he's so intelligent, but also speaks to things with a very depth oriented um, perspective, which you and I obviously love so much. So it's like he brings things in a really tangible, um, intelligent way to the table, but he also brings so much soul in the way that he talks about things, which I really love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you guys are going to really like this one. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. We are so excited to have Connor Beaton in the house today. Connor, um, first of all, I'm just so excited to have this opportunity to thank you. I got to tell you, as a therapist, you have been such an invaluable resource um, in so many different ways for me. Vanessa's heard me talk about it often. Um, you are someone, I, I do primarily couples work, but you are someone that I sort of offer you as a resource to the men that I work with and really the couples as well. I think I've learned so much about men from listening pretty, um, you know, consistently to your podcast and your content. And, um, so, you know, just starting off, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's having such an impact and it's really important. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's fun. I, I love what I do. And I like, I, I love actually hearing that. I think that's like the the greatest compliment. I have a lot of therapists and psychologists that reach out to me and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and refer men my way or, you know, just ask questions. I mean, I've had 
PhD students reach out and be like, can I study what you're doing? (laughs) I don't know if I have that much time, but I'm happy to answer your questions. You're Uh, like, I'm a new dad. I don't know. No pressure. I'm for being uh, studied right now. uh, It's like, I got a two-year-old, man. I'm like, (laughs) busy. But honestly, thank you so much. It's It's a very deep compliment. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, will you give our listeners a little bit of background into how you came to the place where you're doing this work with men and how this became your passion? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, the short version of it is um, I was living a very different life and, you know, I was, had a good career, had a good, you know, from the outside, it looked like I had a good career, had a good relationship, you know, had the motorcycle and the five liter Mustang and, you know, I sort of thought that I had built this life. I was traveling the world. Um, mm. I thought that I had kind of built a life that um, that made it look like I was doing all of the things that a, that a successful man should do. Mm. Um, but behind the scenes, I was really struggling. You know, there was constant infidelity. There was um, substance abuse. There was, uh, you know, pretty real porn addiction. Um, and... And so behind the scenes, I was just a mess. And I kind of knew that all of that was going to lead to me bottoming out. Mm. I kind of knew that um, I felt out of control, like my life was spiraling. And that happened, you know, but hit rock bottom, um, lived out of the back of my car for a few weeks because I was too stubborn and uh, pigheaded to let other people know what was going on in my life. And... Fortunately for me, not every human being, not every man has this uh, experience, but fortunately for me, I had a a mentor that was already in my life. Mm. And that mentor happened to be somebody who was quite a bit older. He was in in his 70s and he was well-versed in Jungian psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy and Buddhism and Zen and Taoism. And he kind of took me under his wing. And, you know, the initial conversations were him really helping me get out of the rock bottom, but Mm. they turned into a two and a half year apprenticeship where he Mm. would teach me about Jungian psychology and, you know, Gestalt therapy and all these sort of different healing modalities that were both religious and spiritual and uh, psychological, Um, maybe less religious. I meant to say spiritual, (laughs) Mm. Um, but and with a focus on Jungian psychology um, over those two and a half years. And and it was like a real apprenticeship. I would pay him when I could. And mm-hmm. when I couldn't pay him, I would chop wood and I mm-hmm. would help, you know, farm his asparagus because, you know, he's in his mid to late 70s. And so it, it turned into this thing where it really saved my life. But uh, on the side, I, I was having so many conversations with men who had the exact same thing going on. And there's this, you know, thing that starts to happen when, when we're transparent, that transparency begets transparency. And so when I was really honest and direct with them in my life about how I had been struggling and out of control and that things didn't, you know, things really weren't the way that they appeared, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't the, the sort of mask or facade that I had been creating. Um, I was met with their transparency. I was met with how the businesses weren't as successful as they had made it sound and the marriages weren't as great as they had made it sound and Mm. their careers and their health and all of these things. And maybe I'll wrap it up by saying I started to realize how surface level most of my male relationships were. 
And I started to realize how surface level most male relationships are. Mm -hmm. And that what a lot of men are really grappling with is this kind of isolation from the other men that they're surrounded by. Coupled with a deep desire to have more depth oriented relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. to be able to talk with other men about everything that's going on in life. And so that became the sort of spark for what would become my mission probably about five years later. Um, So, yeah, maybe I'll pause there. Hmm. I love what you're saying so much, um, because something I've heard you speak to is the fact that, you know, what you're talking about is the lack of elders that exists for so many men in our society and some form of like masculine leadership to sort of usher men into this phase of integration. There's like really not an initiatory process for men. So often Um, you speak to that a lot. Um, And it's so funny. Um, Well, so I was just talking to a friend, um, Jeremiah Latimo, and I was telling him that we were about to sit down with you and you know, I was listening to one of your previous episodes where you were saying, like, why Andrew Tate now? And I think, you know, one of the things that um, I love about your content and feels so in alignment with a lot of the ways that Vanessa and I approach things from a Jungian perspective is really to be in the space of curiosity constantly mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. like, this is right or wrong, but like, can we seek to understand what this is about? And I loved, you know, you were in this inquiry around why Andrew Tate. And instead of sort of saying, um, let's look at this through like the villain archetype and the narrative that, you know, he's just evil and really understanding what he is offering young men. And I think Mm -hmm. you were saying, you know, 32% of boys are growing up in a household without any sort of a masculine role model. And what I loved that Jeremiah and I were talking about is there's just a lot of ways that the next level of development collectively is really going to require us as women to get a little bit more curious about the ways that, the modern feminist movement has really been another element of what has cultivated a a level of dehumanization within us. And that Mm. there's like really no space for men to be men. Um, I've heard you sort of speak to this thing of like, I'm not going to apologize for being a man and Mm -hmm. not being like a radical statement, you know, and what, I don't know. I'm curious to hear what that brings up for you as you hear me say that. But I thought I thought what you were saying about Andrew Tate was so important and that, you know, instead of sort of making people wrong and bad because there are elements of the ways their delivery are a little bit abrasive and tough, can we attempt to understand, one, what there might be some truth in some of what this person is offering, but also what other people are taking away from what this person is saying that they're drawing benefit from. Do you know what I mean? I would add uh, Jordan Peterson to that too, because I think very similarly, because also he has the elder quality. I think mm-hmm. he does bring a lot of young men into this this hope for you know the wise elder um, and him and Andrew Tate have very similar kind of messaging. So anyway, I just want to throw that in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different sort of st- strings to pull on or threads to pull on within that vein. But, you know, I've, I've said time and time again, I think Jordan Peterson is the, the modern representation of the father archetype mm-hmm. that's lacking within our culture that a lot of young men are craving. Um, like him or hate him, you know, I mean, I don't agree with everything that he said by any means. I, you know, but I think the, I think the main problem is that we've entered into this space where the people who are yelling loudest about the work that men need to do 
are mm. providing very little solutions outside of men need to be more vulnerable. And when yeah. you really start to drill down into give me a very specific example of a man that you admire, that you actually approve of, they can't come up with anybody. Like mm. they just, you know, there's just this kind of undercurrent of wounding and pain towards men in the masculine that is so baked into some people's psyche and, and identity and way of being that there's no real discourse around, well, maybe men and women are different and maybe how we heal and maybe how we move through things and maybe how we process things is different. And maybe we actually need to be hearing different messages right now. And I think the other thing that has been very interesting is that there's this interpretation I mean, the video that I put out about Andrew Tate, it was so interesting because, and any time that I talk about Jordan Peterson, uh, to just mention their names mm -hmm. is to elicit vitriol and backlash. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not even talking about agreeing with their sentiment. Mm -hmm. and, and what's interesting is the Andrew Tate video, I didn't even talk about whether I liked him or not. I didn't <laughs> talk about my opinion about him. I didn't talk about whether I agree with anything that he says. I didn't even venture into any of that territory. I simply said, let's talk about why Andrew Tate and why he's become so prominent right now. And I think the challenge is that our culture has become so polarized that we can't even have very simple and civil discourse about things that matter. And people are so reactive, which is the shadow, right? Yeah. It's the shadow within us. And, you know, Jung talked about the shadow being one of the most important things that we need to deal with in our life, you know? And the, the sort of first step to in, in individuation or a sense of wholeness or a sense of self, you know, rec reckoning. And uh, what's challenging is that I think that the internet has made it possible for us to cast and, and have a much bigger shadow. Mm. You know, it's made it much more possible for us to just react and, and sort of spew our stuff onto other people very unconsciously and not really knowing it and feeling very righteous and justified in our commentary. And so, you know, one of the things that I've talked about is how, you know, not only are men in our modern society in decline, but there is this huge vacuum of healthy male role models. Mm -hmm. You know, a young man who is growing up in a household, right? One in four children are going to grow up without a father figure in the house. Now, the data shows us that for young girls, that's actually not as damaging as it is for young men. In fact, most young women are going to sort of get through that in, you know, we can talk about <laughs> psychologically and whatnot, but they're going to get through that in their education and their health and whatnot, um, much like a, a young girl would if she had both parents present. But a young boy is really going to struggle. And, and this, the research shows that. And so a young boy can grow up in a household without any father figure, and then he can enter into the education system where it's like 2% of kindergarten teachers are male and mm -hmm. 20, I think it's 27 to 32%, depending on where you are, Canada, the United States, uh, 27 to 32% of teachers within mm -hmm. grades one to 12 are male, right? The, the teacher population in universities is dropping in a, in a staggering rate. The, the amount of young men going to university and graduating from university or college is dropping at a staggering rate. Mm -hmm. And so you can literally be a young boy, grow up in your family, go to school, 
graduate from high school, go to college, graduate from college, and come into contact with very, very, very few elder men. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can literally become a 24-year-old man who has not really had any men around in his life. And maybe you had some guys that were coaches in sports or, you know, other guys that you played sports with. So there's just this sort of vacuum of male mentorship and mature masculinity. And I think we underestimate how important modeling is for young boys. Mm. You know, we really learn a lot by modeling what it looks like to be a man and to be grounded in our masculinity and what we should be doing with our anger that, you know, that's one of the most important attributes that a father brings to the table is how a, how a child deals with risk and how a child, you know, sort of self-regulates, especially with young boys. So I I know that's a, a lot in there, but I think what I'll end with is, is that when we have this conversation socially, about how to support men, what men are going through, what young boys are going through. It's often listened to through the lens of, well, if you're talking about young boys and young men, then you don't care about women, or you don't care about this minority, or you don't care about this other group. And that's not true. That's a false dichotomy, right? We can talk about men and still care about women. And I think that we need more of these conversations because to have a wild, wildly huge population of men who aren't dating, aren't going to school, are living at home, aren't entering to, into the workforce is not good for society and culture. Mm-hmm. And I think the last thing that I would say is who likes emotionally intelligent, well-rounded, successful men? Women do. Women. And so <laughs> right. we're creating a population of young men that young women are looking at and saying, I don't know if I want to date that guy. And yeah. that guy is feeling that and being like, well, I don't know if culture and society has set me up to be a success to really f- enjoy and like who I am. So, all right, I'm going to pause there because I just said <laughs> well, <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff. Like I got so much we could go on. <laughs> yeah, but and not only what you're saying about like, yes, these, these are attractive men to be in relationship with and partner with, but also if you look at who are in the leadership positions mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in government and in these structures, they are some of these, you know, really, I would say, wounded men who have sort of disassociated from their hearts and their souls as a survival mechanism. But mm-hmm. we have to care about like men are half the population. So if men are hurting, um, that is impacting all of us. And I would say that a lack of leadership and a lack of um, healthy models of masculinity as you're speaking to is really from my perspective at the core of like the majority of our societal struggles right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of young guys who enjoyed the sort of basic principles and tenets that somebody like Jordan Peterson were putting out, right? I mean, he's maybe he's saying a little bit more radical stuff now, but when he Mm -hmm. first started talking, he wasn't saying anything wild and crazy. He was was saying like, go make your bed, you know, (laughs) like dress nicely, take care of your body. And and young men were eating this up because there's such a vacuum Mm -hmm. of order and structure in young men's lives that when they heard simple things like, yes, that's what I've been struggling with is the simple act of making my bed and keeping my room clean and, and letting that be a representation of, of who I am, you know, and letting that sort Mm -hmm. of embody who I am. Uh, but I think what a lot of men experienced was they saw somebody like him come under vicious attack and, and then, you know, have sort of seen an extension of a lot of commentary that 
you know, any man that starts to, um, to really enter into the conversation and talk about young men really gets a lot of backlash. Mm -hmm. And so you have somebody like Jordan Peterson, who's an academic who is saying it, you know, from a Jungian frame, from a psychological frame, from data and research. And then you have somebody like Andrew Tate, who's saying it from a very different perspective. Uh, and they're both getting a ton of backlash from people. And so I think a lot of young men have started to pull back and say like, well, maybe, maybe I just should just be quiet about being mm -hmm. a man. And maybe I shouldn't have an opinion about being a, a young man. And maybe I shouldn't talk about my struggles, you know? And so I think it's, it's, the impact of it, and this isn't to sort of point fingers at anybody in specific, but I think the impact of it has been that a lot of young men and a lot of men in, in general have started to retreat and have started to pull out from dating and society and culture, and they just don't give a shit. And they're like, mm -hmm. I don't really want to engage in this at all. And that's problematic. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, <laughs> it's just, it's just problematic. And we know that not to get so sort of existential, we, but we just know that historically, you know, you look mm -hmm. at any culture and any country that has, has struggled throughout history, it's almost always because they have a large population of young men who have ejected from the modern narrative and culture and said, I don't care about this anymore because you don't care about me. And it becomes a really big problem within 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I was thinking too, as you were speaking about, um, and I'm obviously going to paraphrase, but uh, Bell Hooks talks about, right, like the rage toward women from a lot of men and boys coming from essentially what you're saying, which is like, number one, not having the modeling for healthy anger. What does that look like, right, as a man? But also because the the quote unquote woman figure, the female figure, the feminine figure in their lives becomes... Um, almost like the container for everything. Like, because you're the only thing that I have, right? So if we're talking about these, these, you know, like you were saying, a boy can grow up basically to 25 and potentially never interact with a, a strong masculine. I'm going to dump everything. Like, you're going to be the container for everything, including my anger, including my rage. But in the realm of what Vanessa was saying, you created a video a while ago, Connor, that I cannot tell you how many times I have shared this video. It's called, um, A Woman Doesn't Want to Validate Your Feelings. Mm. And, um, I study masculine and feminine energetics. I just finished writing my first book on this topic. And there was a way that I would be attempting to articulate something that I had come to understand about my own relationship, my own marriage, and that I was seeing constantly playing out in couples dynamics, but that I, as a woman was really struggling to articulate it in a way to men that this is what's happening until you made this video. And you were basically saying, um, you know, what women will say often to men is, I want you to be vulnerable. I want you to express what you're going through emotionally, but they don't want to experience you as emotionally dysregulated and not able to be aware of your emotional landscape, right? And Vanessa and I talk a lot about um, what so many women talk to us about and have the struggle around is feeling like I have all these kids, I have all these responsibilities, I have this thing. And then my husband is like another kid that is constantly like 
drawing, like, you know, we joke about it, like harvesting a feminine energy, but a little <laughs> bit like pulling yeah. on my energetics all the time. And it feels childlike. Right. And I think the way you explained in that video to men, why it feels that way and also what to do about it has just been so unbelievably helpful. So mm, thank you good. for that. Yeah. But, um, I think it's, it's an important thing because it's just so like over and over again, the thing that I see happening with couples, you know? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I could speak to that, I think one of the chapters in my book is called "The Myth of Male Vulnerability," mm. and it seems to be one of the chapters that has resonated with so many men because it really talks about the quagmire that a lot of men feel, which is when they listen to, uh, you know, therapeutic content that's out there, when they listen to the the therapeutic industry, or they turn on the news or, you know, whatever it is, and people are talking about the challenges that men are facing, the almost inevitable solution is that men need to be more vulnerable. And so a lot of men hear this and they think, okay, I need to be more vulnerable. My wife or my girlfriend, she's telling me to open up. Of course, we're, you know, we're talking about heteronormative relationships, but it sort of applies to any style of relationship, but they're being told to open up and be more vulnerable. And so they think, okay, well, I'll just do that. You know, I'll, I'll give it a try. And so they start to bring their emotions, their grief, their anger, their sadness into their relationship with their partner, but it's raw. You know, they haven't actually worked with it in any way. They haven't sculpted it. They haven't, you know, been around other men who have a certain depth and level of emotional capacity and language and, mm. um, and, and ability to work with their own emotions. And so what ends up happening is a lot of guys just bring these sort of raw, unfiltered, unprocessed, misunderstood internal emotions into their relationship. And they sort of emotionally vomit into the relationship at their partner. <laughs> Maybe that's not the best way of putting it, but it's what we did. It's what I did right in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, women want me to be more vulnerable. And I would just bring all my, you know, all my emotions into the relationship. And then a woman's like, oh, okay. So now I have to help you sort this out. I either have mm. to help you fix this or solve this or do something with this. Um, and you know, what, what men are really wanting to move towards and what a lot of women are really saying when they're saying, I want, you know, to you to be more vulnerable is I want you to tell me how you're feeling while also communicating that you got it in some mm. capacity that you either have good men in your life that you're working through this with or that there's something very specific that I can be in service of to you. And what most of us do as guys is because we're, we're not used to this. We're not used to bringing our emotions to our partner is that we just, we just put them out there, you know, yeah. and we're like, well, I feel really sad about what's happening with my dad and da, 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 da. And it's not process. There's no real context. There's no direction. There's, there's nothing. And so, but which can feel very unsafe for a partner, right? I was that just going to say, I'm glad you said that <laughs> it's unsafe. Yeah. yeah. But what is, yeah. what is safe and what is attractive and what is, um, what does create intimacy and polarity is when we as men can understand and have the level of self-awareness to tune into, oh, I feel, I feel a certain, I'm experiencing I was just gonna say, um, a certain that. charge <laughs> around this conversation, you know, the charge of anger or the charge of uh, embarrassment or the charge of shame. And to be able to have the tools to work with that, to acknowledge it, to not let it take hold of us, 
to not suppress it because what most of us as guys do is we either move to suppress it, right? Oh, I feel angry and I shouldn't feel that way. Let me stuff that shit down. Mm-hmm. Or we become it. We literally act from that emotion. And, you know, we, we blow up, we let our anger out, we, you know, whatever it is. So one of the best things that I always try and tell men is like practice your emotional communication with other men in your life. You know, have conversations about where you're struggling, about what you're dealing with in your marriage, your relationship or your career or your health or with your family, because that becomes the kind of training ground for you to expand your internal sense of self-awareness but mm-hmm. also had have a wild, wider tool set so that when you go to your partner and you say hey i've been feeling this way about our sex life or i've been feeling this way about in my relationship with my dad or you know how our kid is struggling that you are much more grounded in it you know mm-hmm. you're not just bringing this like raw emotion that you just tuned into for the very first time unfiltered, uh, you know, sort of not worked with to your partner and putting it on them to figure out what to do with it. Because the biggest challenge that I see happening, and I'll pause here, the biggest challenges challenge that I see happening in a lot of modern day relationships is that a man unconsciously turns his partner into his emotional processing center. Yes. Right. So he, he feels something and then he creates conflict with her to try and get her to figure out what he's feeling or how he should deal with it or what he should do because of it. Right. And so, and that's taxing on the relationship. And Mm -hmm. I think it creates a lot of impatience with his feminine partner. If you know, that's the dynamic. And, and I think it disempowers him because he wants to feel emotionally competent, right? He wants to feel intellectually competent, financially competent, competent with his body. Uh, And so, what we need to do is practice developing a certain level of comp- competence and confidence in being able to speak some of these things. So, well, and what you said too, not only does he put that on her and expect her to kind of fix it, it's like what I've seen, I mean, personally, but also in my clients is there's this unspoken, unconscious um, desire for her to fix it too, right? And so the, you put somebody in this kind of mother son dynamic. And I hear so often in my couples where, you know, they'll say, well, she mothers me or she nags me or she this or she that. And when I get down to it, there's a lot of this happening that you're saying. And so I'm like, well, but here's the thing. Both parties have to take responsibility here because you continue to put her in the motherhood role. That's not just her. She's not just swooping in and doing that without you continually saying, please take the wheel for me. Please take the wheel for me. Right. You're both kind of complicit in this. And I think that's really important for a lot of my male clients to hear is what their role is when they get into the mothering dynamic. Yeah. And, and I, I want to make it clear to all the guys that are listening to this. That like, I'm not saying you're responsible for this and you're, you're a fault or, you know, yeah, anything no. like that. But what I am saying is, you, you know, we all have the, you know, I've been working with men for a decade and I've worked with tens of thousands of guys from around the world. And I have learned time and time again that every man has a certain vision of who he wants to be in the relationship mm-hmm. and who he wants to be as a man, who he wants to be as a father and a husband and a leader Like we all have a certain internal sense and pull towards who we want to be. And a lot of conflict shows up in a relationship when a man is not living in congruency with who he ultimately wants to be. 
And so a lot of the times this is solved by questioning guys and saying, you know, like what I'll usually do is like, who, who are you actually wanting to be in the relationship and who are you being right now? Because a lot of the times it's like, well, I'm being needy and I'm being insecure and I'm, you know, passion, passing off decisions that I know I, I want to be making. And, you know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden this huge list starts to unfold and it's like, okay, well, who, who are you wanting to be in the relationship? Mm. And, you know, one of the things that I, I wrote about is like, we as men are very externalized. And so we look out at our partners and we think I have to figure her out. I have to figure out what she needs and what she wants. And I have to uh, figure out how to make her happy. And if I can do all of those things, if I can figure her out and figure out how to make her happy, then maybe I'll get my needs met in return. Right. This is like the I hate this saying, like, it's, it's the epitome of like happy life, happy wife, happy life. Right. Then maybe I can get my needs met in return. And, you know, and then there's a, there's another group of guys that are like, well, I don't, I don't give a shit about that at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so the pendulum is a little bit in the opposite direction. But what we have to start to do is to turn our focus or sort of spotlight of consciousness in the relationship away from our partner. How do I figure yes. her out? How do I mm -hmm. make her happy? How do I, you know, all the sort of questions that most of us guys are rationally grappling with in our head and turn it back towards ourselves and say, who am I being in the relationship? How am I showing up? You know, am I being reactive? Am I shutting down? And, uh, and it's sort of making excuses or reasons for that. Am I shutting down and disconnecting for days at a time from my partner? You know, am I blowing up and becoming angry and reactive and justifying that? Am I uh, not asking for what I want? Am I not making certain decisions? And so when we can begin to do that, then we have hope that we can start to step into the type of self-leadership and self-authorship that a lot of men are deeply craving. And this is, in many ways, what I'm describing is a stepping towards and stepping into and the embodying of our masculine essence, that we take a, a not responsibility, but we take a, uh, a call to adventure a call to the, on the journey of who could I be and become? Because one of the things that I love about Carl Jung is he said, you know, the fastest racehorse or the fastest horse in the race of individuation is marriage, right? Or mm -hmm. relationships. Mm -hmm. Because, and the other thing he said is that women stand right at the very edge of where a man's shadow begins. Mm -hmm. So what does all that mean? All that is a very complicated psychological way of saying that women are going to ignite your insecurities, your inferiorities, your fears, your doubts, mm. and vice versa, right? You, when you're standing in your own truth and your own power, and you're very clear on what you want, are going to ignite their fears and their insecurities and their inferiorities. Mm. And so we have to do the work to turn the lens back onto ourselves rather than trying to change their behavior because we can't control that. Yeah. And I would add to what you're saying, because I think it's a really important piece, Connor. I think for both parties, it's always about bringing the lens back to ourselves because mm -hmm. I think 
something Vanessa and I talk about so consistently is just that everything that we've been taught about love and relationships is just when you really break it down, so unbelievably codependent. And in the realm of taking personal responsibility, I think that is incumbent upon us as women to do as well. And, you know, I see so often, and we talk a lot about how women really fall in love with men's potential and then just sort Mm -hmm. of get into the space of like, I am going to mold this person into Mm -hmm. who I see him being that I could Mm -hmm. conceivably love when he is that man. Um, And then feeling a whole lot of resentment when he is not showing up that way. And I think what you were saying about marriage being this um, invitation, I would say to individuation could conceivably be the case. But a lot of times what I find ends up happening is it becomes a really convenient place for us to hide out and point the finger at the other person (laughs) as to why, um, you know, I would just be showing up as the best version of myself if you would just get yourself together and do what I feel like you need to do to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if we look at it, like this is all of our individuation work and this person is showing me the parts of myself that are sort of unintegrated and, you know, um, asking to be healed. It's a very different relationship than this man is a child and I cannot step into, you know, I think, yes, absolutely. There is a lack of masculine leadership that has just been so normalized And I think it becomes incumbent upon us as women to say, but if I'm sitting around with my girlfriends talking about what a piece of crap my husband is all the time, that's on me. Because why Mm -hmm. are you with him if you have Mm -hmm. so little respect for the man that you're with? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's there's a lot in there, I think. You know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty complicated, I mean, relationships are hard, right? Relationships mm-hmm. are hard. They bring out our shit. They, they trigger us. They cause us to be angry. They cause all of our desires to come forward. I mean, they're just, mm-hmm. they're, they're the best blessing, uh, and opportunity that we can possibly find. But I think, you know, one of the things that we have to remember is that if we're getting caught in, in the the sea of the gender war that's happening right now and we're letting that enter and permeate into our relationship your relationship's fucked like i don't Mm -hmm. mean to be harsh or direct you know i don't know if you have people swear on your show (laughs) and it'll get beeped up (laughs) Um, but like you're so screwed you know like one of the questions that i put out to to men is like when you are dating a woman and you get a couple dates in ask her what she thinks about men and masculinity Mm. because i can tell you right now as a very mature a very and and mature according to other people in my life not (laughs) self-ascribed right this isn't like i i say i'm mature right uh as somebody who's successful and grounded and loves what he does and shows up for his son and like you know possesses some of those qualities if i was on the market today and i was single there's no way that I would want to date a woman who hated men or who didn't see the value in men or who didn't see the value in masculinity or masculine mm-hmm. men. I wouldn't go near that at all. And not because I'm some like traditional right wing yada, yada, yada. I'm none of those things. Um, <clears throat> but simply because I'm a man and I'm masculine and I like that. Mm-hmm. And so it, and, and I enjoy being that way. And I know that there's value in that. And so if I sit across from you on a second or third or fourth date, and I say, tell me what you think about men and masculinity, 
and you spend the next 45 minutes telling me about how men are the problem with existence and how the world would be so much better without men, I'm out. You know, I'm mm -hmm. just not going to stay around because that tells me that you have a deep wound with mm -hmm. the masculine and with men that you haven't dealt with. And I could have a wound with the feminine that I, that I haven't dealt with, but I have. I've done the work to know the value that women have and to respect femininity and to respect women. And I think that we all need to be called back into this place of having some freaking respect for one another and what we bring to the table, even when those things, and especially when those things are different, like that's all right. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that, I think that that's just one of the, you know, major challenges is that I think there's so much content online right now that's talking in a way that's just finger pointing, you know, men are the problem, women are the problem, femininity, this masculinity is, you know, toxic that. And it's, it's so charged that people are letting that enter into their dating. They're letting that enter into their marriages. And, and we, again, we can see this in the stats, right? 66% of men between 18 and 29 are single. It's the highest rate of single men that like we've ever seen but only 33% of women in that same age bracket are single, right? So there's this big discrepancy that's showing up in within male culture, right? Again, 27% of men between that same age bracket, 18 to 29, haven't been sexually active in the last 12 months or ever, whereas with women, it's only 13 or 14%. So there's this huge gap that's starting to take place for a number of reasons mm. within our culture. And we have to, I think, do our collective work to come back into a space of just being able to respect one another, you know, and, and really look at our own pain, our own wounds, our own narrative, our own hurt uh, that we might, we may have experienced from women or from men, et cetera. So, mm. I think mm. I love that question. I'm obsessed with that. And I'm going to like share it with some of my male yeah. clients because I'll be honest, Connor, I would have been one of those women that would have had a very different answer five years ago than I would today to that question. I think having a six-year-old boy has really shifted mm. so much of my relationship with how I hold the masculine. Um, but I think that there's a lot of ways that a lot of us were raised by mothers that taught us that being a good feminist means you you have Caitlin. a lot of um, vitriol for the masculine. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and this is the case with so many men, their mothers standing around talking about how awful men are yep. um, to their sons and what that man internalizes in that conversation, yep. you know? Um, but I think the other part of this, that's really important that you touched on is, you know, you talk about in your podcast a lot that we live in this like outrage attention economy. And I think there's a lot of ways that content creators are really sort of feeding this divide and mm -hmm. um, this polarization and that, you know, Alan Watts, I heard him say once, um, everybody loves to identify where they're being victimized, but very few people like to take responsibility for where they're making themselves a victim, right? And I have noticed if I say things in any vein, sort of similar to what you were saying about um, Andrew Tate and whoever that, you know, if I say anything about we as women taking some responsibility for the part that we're playing in our victimization, like the followers like are out, they're like done with you today. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of times we can't even suggest that there is something more than someone else is to blame for my problems or 
or where we just won't, we don't want to hear that, you know? And I think it's, it's really, I think what is required in the next step of our collective evolution is us to stop pointing the focus outward and say, but how am I complicit in whatever my suffering is, whatever that looks like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you haven't experienced suffering at the hands of somebody else, right? Who's on the other side of the fence. It, it doesn't cancel that out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I think, you know, I think the only inevitable outcome of cancel culture is a kind of uh, self-consuming that is starting to take place, mm -hmm. right? That even people that are advocating for everything that that narrative is promoting, they come under attack and under fire at the even the hint of going against a kind of narrative that the collective has decided on um or or even trying to have a conversation that talks about self-responsibility mm -hmm. and so there's you, you know there's there's middle ground in all of this um but it's kind of like the aurora boris snake i don't know if you've ever seen that but it's like the snake that the symbology of it eating mm -hmm. its own tail mm -hmm. it's like that's what will happen with cancel culture and it's happening mm -hmm. right now you can start to see it it's being it's starting to slowly lose power because it's starting to go in on itself and start to cancel the people that um, that are within that body. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think one of the things that I've talked about, and this is a little bit of a departure from what we're talking about, but since you guys seem to like Jung, I'm just going <laughs> to say one you. nerdy thing. And it, it's, you know, all the nerdy but, things, <laughs> all the nerdy things is you know, I, I, I talked to Dr. James Hollis and mm. I've had this theory for a long time that, you know, a lot of, you know, according to Jung, a lot of our external structures are manifestations of our internal experiences. Mm -hmm. And Jung was a huge believer of the collective unconscious, right? That we have mm -hmm. a sort of personal unconscious and then we have this broader, deeper, wider, you know, ocean of collective un unconscious. And I think what we've done in a lot of ways is that we've created a uh, external manifestation of the collective unconscious in our social media and in the internet. Mm. And so we've actually projected out the collective unconscious into our external life. And the challenge with that is that we're not designed <laughs> to deal with that much collective unconscious or unconscious contents. It's mm -hmm. dysregulating right? Mm -hmm. It causes people to literally start to kind of break down because they're constantly dealing with other people's reactivity and shadow and fears and insecurities and hatred. And so when you go online and you go onto any social media platform, you are bombarded with people's unconscious contents and there's their projections and their fears and all of it. And so, you know, we're used to doing that in small groups. I mm -hmm. can do that with my family. We can do that with our, with our kids and our family members and the people that we work with. But to open the floodgates where you post something online and all of a sudden a thousand people have the capacity to, you know, comment on it or it goes a little viral and all of a sudden 10,000 people or 100,000 people mm -hmm. are, you know, telling you, you know, sort of spewing their fear or mm -hmm. their hatred or, you know, their unconscious reactivity at you, that's very dysregulating for mm -hmm. the average person who doesn't have a framework of what the hell is going on. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think part of our work, um, especially as men, one of the things that I talk about to all men is like, 
your mission in life is to outregulate the other person, period. Mm. It's to outregulate your partner. It's to outregulate your kids. It's to outregulate the people at work. Because if you can do that, you have done something so monumental that you will, you'll never truly know the impact that that has. You know, when I can stay grounded, my, my, I have a son who's two years old and he is wild. <laughs> you know, like talk about kid karma. I was laughing with my mom the other day and like tell, you know, she reminded me of this story where I took golf clubs, me and my buddy took golf clubs and like golfed down the corn that she was trying to grow in her garden. And I was like seven years old. She's like, what were you thinking? I was like, I don't know. It was just a little boy. You know, I just wanted to cause, cause havoc, but I can see that in my son. And so, I know that my mission with him is to be as grounded and as regulated as possible. Mm. Um, and that's becoming ever increasingly hard and challenging mm -hmm. and almost impossible for most people. So when you layer in social dynamics and relational challenges and work stress and inflation and all this other shit that mm -hmm. has manifest post pandemic, right? A lot of people are just in a constant state of dysregulation. Yes. Period. And, and it's one of the biggest challenges that I see. And so my mission with my work is always with men. It's like your work is to regulate, mm -hmm. not to avoid, not to numb out, not to anything else. Like if you can just regulate, you will have done something so substantial for your family and your kids and your relationship that it's, it's hard to compute. Truly, it's mm -hmm. hard to compute rationally. But I think it's something that when I say it, we can probably all feel it in our bodies, the importance of it. Obsessed with that, Connor. <laughs> I wrote it down. Um, because I think we've just been so conditioned to believe that we need to outsource our regulation. And that mm -hmm. if I can just get this other person, which is always the variable that I have no control over to behave the way that I feel like they should behave, then I can exhale, then I'll be okay. Where there's just such a sense of authentic power that comes from I can do what I can do to bring the focus back to myself and find my mm -hmm. own way to self-regulate. Um, I have found is just so much more of an empowering way to meet whatever the dynamic is. So thank you for that, Jim. That, that's really incredible. I love it. I was just thinking about how so often when I'm working with either clients or in groups or whatever, I will almost, I don't want to say skip past, but I, I feel like maybe in the beginning of my work as a therapist, I was much more steeped in bringing like regulation tools to people. And I was really steeped in like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And I was really doing a lot of that work. And because I myself now feel like I embody that work, I've, I've moved very much into a little bit more existential places. And so often it's like, I forget how many people are like, wait, 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 but how do you do that? Wait, 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 like what does regulation look like? What is something I can do? And every time I go there and I give like a very detailed example of a way that I regulate, the amount of people that are like mind blown, like, oh my God, I'm going to use it. I'm going to try that. And I forget how much we're, we're, we're dying for that. You know, like we don't get that. Most of us do not get that from our parents. I mean, I sure as hell know I didn't get that from mine. Um, still don't get that from mine. She gets mad at me when I regulate myself because it kind of reflects back on her, you know? Um, but we don't get it from our friends. We, we're not getting it from social media. We're doing the opposite. And so, yeah, I mean, all that to say that it, it really is really important work for us to actually learn what those tools are, be able to embody those tools so that we can also give those to our friends and those close community because they're suffering with, without having them as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
do you think it'd be valuable to talk about what that actually means regulation <laughs> I mean, I think so. I think sometimes we, you know, I, I do like, it's like we take it for granted. And like I said, sometimes people are like, oh shit, can you break that down? And I'm like, oh, was that helpful? <laughs> Maybe it was, you know? So yeah, I mean, I would love for that, Connor. Yeah. Some of the tools that you give the men that you work with. I mean, I think the, the, the biggest one is always the breath. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's just, you know, I'll, there's so much, uh, there's just so much data out there and research on the breath being the dial between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system in that mm -hmm. scale, right? So we have two parts to our autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. I'm more explaining this for the audience because I feel like you guys <laughs> probably explain this <laughs> yeah. in spades as well. But we have our autonomic nervous system and there's two parts, two branches, which is the sympathetic and parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. And the sympathetic, the way I like to explain it in a simple way, sympathetic is the gas pedal and mm -hmm. parasympathetic is the brake pedal. Right. So sympathetic is helps us go. It helps us get stuff done. It's also responsible for stress. So that's the that's the stress part of the scale. And, um, you know, there's certain neurochemicals that come along with the sympathetic. So if you're sympathetic dominant, you probably have a little bit more adrenaline coursing through your body and cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And those types of things over time, if left in that state, will lead to inflammation, which can lead to a whole bunch of stuff that we ultimately don't want. If you're more parasympathetic dominant, that's where we're in our rest and digest state, right? So that's where uh, sympathetic is like your breath rate is up. So you're taking mm -hmm. more breaths per minute. Your heart rate is up per minute. And in parasympathetic, that's where you're like, you're chilling out, right? You're relaxing. Your breath rate is going down. So you're taking fewer breaths per minute. Your heart is beating less per minute. There's less cortisol or if at, you know, if at all any being released through your body, um, your, you know, your body's actually processing what it's, what it's dealing with. And the interesting thing, and I'll just sort of pop this out there because I don't think a lot of people know this is that in order for men to be aroused, they need to be in a parasympathetic dominant state. So in order for a man to get an erection and maintain an erection, he actually has to be in a more relaxed parasympathetic dominant state. So a lot of the reasons why men have uh, why we have, you know, sexual performance issues, erectile dysfunction and, um, premature ejaculation in non-medical senses is when a guy is just in performance anxiety, right? So he's in a overly stressed out state. So one of the simplest and easiest ways to move from a sympathetic dominant or stressed out state down into a parasympathetic dominant or uh, relaxed, calm, rest and digest state is to inhale through the nose for a count of four, pause for one or two, and then exhale out the mouth like you're exhaling out through a straw for the count of seven, and then hold for one or two, and then inhale and repeat that cycle for somewhere between three to five minutes. It doesn't have to be for very long. Even if you only did it for 60 seconds, you'd get the benefits. But what this does is this forces your breath rate per minute to go down and in turn, that forces your heart rate per minute to go down. Mm -hmm. And that sends the signal to your nervous system to relax, to actually calm down. And so this can be one of the best things for you to do when, you know, I mean, this morning my kid was throwing frozen blueberries at the wall. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's, it's like eight o'clock in the morning. I'm like, bro, this is a brand new, I like, those are brand new walls that you are screwing up. And, you know, the okay yeah you're doing that right now mm -hmm. all right and so we can even just use that one single breath 
as a pause, right? To catch ourselves from reacting. Mm -hmm. right? Viktor Frankl said between stimulus and response, there's a pause. Yeah. And so we have to utilize that pause. Um, but if you're a guy that's wanting to just relax, you're wanting to calm down, you're wanting to de-stress. I mean, I've given this to men of like when you get home from work or before you go upstairs from your office and your house to do this for three to five minutes. And what mm -hmm. you'll find is that you're automatically a little bit more calm. And the second thing that you can start to add into that is to shift some of your consciousness and your awareness down into your pelvic floor so that the pelvic bowl where your hips are, right, it's kind of shaped like a bowl. The further away from your mind that you can get, the less uh, cognitive noise you're going to have. Mm -hmm. So if you can inhale and let the breath drop deeper and deeper into the body as you inhale, as you're doing the exercise that I gave you before, and you can start to let some of your consciousness and awareness rest lower in the body, you are going to feel much more present. You're going to feel much more calm. And my guess is that when you're interacting with other people, they are going to feel it mm -hmm. because you're not going to be so busy in your thoughts. And for a lot of us, we're just, you know, men and women alike, we're just caught in this constant chatter that's going on in our minds. So those are two very quick and simple things that you can do. Super helpful. Yeah, it's also like honoring the transition, I think is really important. I had a teacher once tell me how often we don't honor transitions between things that we're doing or moments or, you know, environments. And so taking a moment to do some breathing in between can be really helpful for the nervous system, right? Because we live in a very overstimulated world. And so kind of honoring like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore and I'm going into this now can be really powerful for the psyche and the nervous system. So thank you for that, Connor. Yeah. Yeah. Connor, you're such a beautiful blend of like the tangible real world mm -hmm. tools and also dropping into some of those esoteric spaces, which is why, you know, I just really love your work so much. And I have a list of things I wanted to talk to you about that we, we barely scratched the surface of. So we have to ask you to come back another time, but, um, we have a lightning round of questions that we have for all of our guests. So I want to ask you those to be mindful of your time. Um, cool. Who have been your greatest teachers, influences, mentors, either people that you've met along your path or, you know, just people whose work you've been really impacted by? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, my first mentor, Bernard, was huge. My current mentor, uh, Dewey Freeman, who's been doing gestalt therapy for 40 plus years in developmental psychology. Um, Carl Jung, massive. I think on the spiritual side, certainly Alan Watts has been a really big influence on, on me. And then another guy named Anthony DeMello. Mm -hmm. um, who was phenomenal. His book awareness really changed my perspective. I think I've read it or listened to it every year for mm -hmm. the past seven or eight years. And it's just something mm -hmm. that I revisit constantly. So yeah, those are, those are the big ones. I love it. And then, you know, this idea of flow that everyone talks about, but really it's just this, this thing that you're doing when you drop beneath the surface and you kind of blink your eyes and hours have gone by. What is that? Like, what are you doing when you find yourself in flow? I would say that flow is a moving of our consciousness into the energetic movement of the present. Mm -hmm. And so it's just that we reduce, we reduce the rational chatter 
and mm-hmm. we move more in alignment and more in connection with the energetic flow that's naturally taking place in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that we create a kind of symbiotic relationship with the now that oftentimes doesn't exist when we're caught in the always moving chop of mm-hmm. our uh, internal commentary. So for you, is that writing? Do you find yourself doing it when you're teaching? What, what do you feel like you touch when you, when that symbiotic flow happens for you? Yeah, it can be in writing. Um, I mean, I, I love writing. I do a lot. I do a lot of it. I really loved writing my book and it was such a cool experience. Uh, so I can find it there, but certainly like when I'm facilitating, you know, when I'm running a group weekend or I'm, you know, working one-on-one with a client and I'm guiding them through something, uh, you know, pretty, pretty deep or meaningful that I can get mm-hmm. very, just everything else cascades away the task list to do list, the, you know, am I doing this right? Or should I ask this question? Like mm-hmm. all of that fades into a connection with a knowing of, of what action or direction to take. Uh, wow. So I, I find it there a lot. Sometimes in interviews, I can find that sense of flow or I'll just be like riffing on something and be like, oh yeah, okay, come back into, <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like letting, you know, like letting that uh, speak through me in, in some way. But I think it, the, the easiest place to find it is certainly working with somebody. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the lastly is honestly like with my wife and my son, mm-hmm. if my wife is going through something really challenging or she's expressing something, you know, emotional to me, I can move into that place pretty quickly of just deep unencumbered presence with Mm -hmm. the moment. And that very much feels like a sense of flow. I I think that flow, we, we've done ourselves a disservice of allocating it. It's, you know, to these very specific moments of Mm -hmm. surfing on a wave and, Mm -hmm. you know, carving through the ski hills. It's like, no, you can fly, find flow in a conversation and, and mm-hmm. being present with your partner in a sexual moment or, you know, or even just sometimes I'll just look at my son, you know, and he and I will be hanging out and it's just like all of a sudden this, this flow will take place and it's just yes. wonderful. Yeah. I love that. I can't believe your son's two. I feel like you yeah. guys just had your child. And you said to him, I was like, I he's two already? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. Me too. Me as well. <laughs> um, and Connor, what breaks your heart? Oh my goodness. What a question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think when I'm really present, I'll almost almost anything, you know, I can really let myself be open to the, the pain of anybody's internal experience. Mm. Um, so I know that's not a very descriptive answer. I think maybe a more direct way of saying it is like any time that I witness somebody suffering, I can be present to the pain of that. And that can, that can break my heart. Mm. And it sometimes is a challenging way to live, to try and stay open to the suffering of other people. Um, but I think it's important because it gives me a much more multidimensional understanding, I think, sometimes of of people who have lived very different lives from me. And and mm-hmm. so I think that's it. I don't have one specific way of, of saying that. I love that. Yeah. Um, and then the final one is a doozy. What is your favorite food? Oh, Lord. 
(laughs) (laughs) So, oh my gosh. I mean... My my parents used to call me the human garbage disposal. So, <laughs> so all food. Much, I pretty you and much Vanessa like have eat, something in common. <laughs> yeah, eat everything. But uh, I am a I love a good pizza and and omakase. So the very different experiences. Very different. Like, sometimes I just want a good pizza and I'll you know just carb load like a mofo. But other times I'm like. <laughs> I like the I like the nuanced approach of an omakase where it's the mm-hmm. chef just chooses everything for you and it's it's perfect. So yeah. the, that's my answer. The balance, I like that. It shows balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, <laughs> the greasy and the goodness. Yeah, yeah, you gotta have both, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Connor, you know, I'm so inspired by people that are just so rooted and driven in their sense of purpose. And it's so clear in the work that you do. I was looking back as I was doing a little bit of digging before you were coming on. You've done like 800 episodes of your podcast. I was like, what? Um, But clearly there is so much flow in showing Mm -hmm. up and being of service in this world. And I just I really appreciate you. And I am happy to have this opportunity to say thank you, because I know that your ripple is being felt. It's certainly been felt throughout my clients. I can't tell you the number of men who are like, oh, that thing that you sent me for man talks. It was so unbelievably helpful. I get it now. So thank you for what you're doing. It matters so much. And um, you are appreciated. Awesome. Thank you. Where, um, for our audience that doesn't know, where can they find you? We're going to, we're going to link everything in the show notes, including your book, but I'd love for you to tell them. Uh, it's just mantalks.com. Um, like man talking, but man talks <laughs> and yeah, you can find me at man talks on pretty much every social media platform. Um, minus TikTok, not on there, not interested, <laughs> uh, but the, the big one, the big one is Instagram. So yeah. yeah, so Instagram at Man Talks is where I spend most of my days. Cool, amazing. Thank you, Connor. Thank you so much, Thank Connor. You. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy the Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. 
This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com